Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic. And today I'm going to be talking to Mark Searby, who has written a book on Eddie Murphy, the comedian turned film star who was such a phenomenon through the 80s, 90s, through the last four decades, I guess, uh, and reinvented himself many times over, sometimes well, sometimes not so well. Um, and we're going to be talking about him and the, his contribution to movies um, and Mark's book. If you enjoy the episode, please remember to like, subscribe, leave reviews. That helps a lot. Tell your friends. And, uh, and yeah, um, uh, you can follow me on Twitter as well at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, enjoy the conversation. I sort of change my posters depending on who, uh, what interviews I'm doing, basically. But um, I'm still waiting for my Eddie Murphy posters to turn up. So they're in the post. So um, at the moment, unfortunately, it's me and then the background, uh, Frank Serpico. So you're going to have to get this right, John, because obviously the police are watching. <laughs> yeah, he's completely incorruptible. Which yes. is, uh, there's no, uh, no folding a, a $50 bill in between my knuckles and sort of trying to pass it over to him. And also, he has the greatest set of hair and beard you've ever seen. So um, that's another issue there. He does one of the best transitions from clean-shaven to hippie uh, of anybody in that movie, I think. Well, they did it backwards, you know. 
Oh, right. He, oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. They, they, they shaved it off at the end. So yes, they, yes. I did not know that. There you go. Uh, so somebody should write a book about Pacino, really. And if only, <laughs> if only someone would. If only someone would. And Rick Mail. And Rick Mail. That would be good. Yeah, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? That would be. Yes. That would be. And and also Eddie Murphy. I think. Someone and should. also Eddie Murphy. He, yes, that he warrants a, a book. He warrants a book. Absolutely. I mean, people will say, "Hey, there's a book out there of Eddie Murphy," and it's true. There are a couple, but one of them was released just after, obviously, his. Um, his late night scandal, shall we say. Um, and it's a bit more of his personal life. And then there's one from the early 1980s, which finishes with four pages about his star sign. Ah, what is his star sign? I don't know. I skipped those pages. <laughs> I, mean, it, <laughs> that, I mean, that's not relevant, is it? I mean, who needs to know that? But, you know, listen, it was in the book and I was like, wow how to pad out a book. I and mean, the book was only about 70 pages as well. I was fascinated that somebody right. got, managed to get that published. So people are interested in this thing. I was interviewing somebody recently for a book I'm about, I'm writing. Um, and they, the first thing they said was, oh, well, he's Sagittarius, you know, so, and, and, and that was kind of the, 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 the starting point of their evaluation of, of the character, you know, he's wow. Sagittarius. And, okay. Isn't that interesting that people see an actor or a director or, you know, somebody in entertainment first via their star sign rather than anything else? I think a lot of it happens in California. Right. <laughs> sort of. I always remember it was in Annie Hall, Jeff Goldblum on the phone to his therapist saying, I forgot my mantra. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah you could be right then all about california yes absolutely so what what did inspire you to um to choose eddie murphy as the next uh subject for your for your book and uh, you know well i think much like a lot of people i am a huge fan of eddie murphy i mean i grew up with eddie murphy movies you grew up with eddie murphy definitely movies. but the thing is let's face it there is two generations out there that grew up with Eddie Murphy's because Eddie Murphy has two, well, let's say three different career paths now. You know, there's the early stuff, 48 Hours, Beverly Hills Cop, um, you know, the movies that you and I grew up with mm. and know for the um, electric Eddie Murphy, the nonstop Eddie Murphy, the guy who was really funny and got away with a lot of things as well. And I was like, that's an interesting guy. But then you have his second career path, which is kids' movies, Shrek, mm. Dr. Doolittle, The Nutty Professor, all the others that we won't mention in this interview as well because they're absolutely terrible. Um, and then you have his kind of, I don't want to say it's his comeback, let's be honest, because he's not been anywhere. It's just the mm. fact that he's returned back to that state of adult comedy to a certain degree you know dolomite obviously and then you know coming to america the number two uh, whether you liked it or not it's the fact that he's returning back to that original uh, generation or our generation and i was like I, i'm fascinated from a standpoint of somebody you know as a film critic as to how you can easily change i mean granted he had some problems but easily change from going i'm doing this in here and it's very adult 
And then instantly I'm going to change over to doing kids movies. And the thing is, we see it a lot now. I mean, to be fair, we see it a lot with um, WWE wrestlers. Let's be honest. Mm. They're either making horror movies or they're making kids movies. Mm. And it seems like an easy transition. But you're talking about Eddie Murphy. And at that point, people weren't making those transitions. And yet Mm. he did it seamlessly. And I think people were looking on going, wow, that's really interesting. So there is that from my critical standpoint of how did he do that and also which i imagine we will get into shortly is that you know let's be honest here he was one of if not the first black comedian to break out worldwide to a white audience worldwide you know i mean in the book i think i've listed about three people before him people of color who were who had broken out i would say worldwide um whitney houston Magic Johnson, you know, I I would say those two people before mm. Eddie Murphy. People will say Richard Pryor. Let's yeah, that's on the tip of my tongue. But do you think Richard Pryor was a worldwide phenomenon like Eddie Murphy? Mm. That's the question here. You know, you can turn around and you can say, yes, Richard Pryor revolutionized stand-up comedy. And he did. There's no two ways about it. You know, one of the greats, one of the all-time greats. But did he have that impact in films as well? And yes, we can point to, you know, his appearance in Superman, which is great. And we can talk about moving, which I love that film. I think it's fantastic. Or we can talk about Uptown Saturday Night. But none of those had the, the worldwide cultural footprint that Eddie Murphy did in 48 hours and then followed that up with Beverly Hills Cop and then followed it up with something else and something else and something else. So that's why I'm saying as much as we can look at Richard Pryor and go, yes, you know, a pioneer, he didn't have the, you know, the, the worldwide breakout that Eddie Murphy really did. And that really interested me. I thought I was, I was kind of fascinated by how that worked. And I think you can look at it on another level. And I'd only really thought about this after I'd finished writing the book is that Richard Pryor to Eddie Murphy, what we were just saying Mm. is the same relationship of Brando to Pacino. Mm. Mm, Okay. So, So Brando, obviously, you know, revolutionized acting and some will say one of the greatest actors of all time, but then Pacino came and, had that huge worldwide footprint that yes, Brando did have to a certain degree, but not across everything he did. Mm. Whereas Pacino at that time did. And I, I find that really interesting how there's that through line between them two and then between Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy. That's just my opinion though. You know, that's what I'm thinking is that you can see how some people, what's the phrase? So-and-so walked, so so-and-so could fly. <laughs> could run, yeah. There yeah. We, yes, yeah. yes. So, I, you know, that's the way I look at it. But it does come back to the fact that I'm only going to write a book about somebody I'm really interested in, who I right. find is really interesting. And I think Eddie Murphy is a really interesting guy. Yeah, I think I think you've got a point with Richard Pryor was like, I, I would say he was a star, whereas Eddie Murphy, at his height was a superstar. And uh, I think there is a distinction between those two. I'll have to think about the Brando Pacino one a bit longer. I think Brando, <laughs> I, mean, I think maybe you're underestimating Brando a little bit. There. Yeah, no, I I, you're probably right, John. You're probably right. Listen, I'm a huge Brando fan anyway, you know, and if somebody says to me, who's the great, you know, who's the greatest actor of all time? 
I will probably say Brando because of what he did for acting. Sure. But, but the, you know, the analogy there is coming from me and I'm like, I can see the line there clearly. Sure. Some people probably can't, but you know, there's um, the last chapter in my book in the Eddie Murphy book is all about, it, it's kind of like a, a quick history through black comedians. Mm. And that was absolutely fascinating to write. Absolutely mm. fascinating. Yeah. You know, there's obviously there's, there's bits in there about Richard Pryor. There's bits in there about Mons Mabley. There's bits in there about Nipsey Russell. But Red then, Fox. Yeah, Red oh. Fox as well. You know, um, you have to include those people. You have to include Red. I mean, he was he was the guy who went out there and swore like a trooper before Richard Pryor was doing it. Right. Um, but then, then the, the toughness comes in because you have to include a few people um, who, well, I mean, let, let's be honest. We, there's no getting away from the fact that when you look at it, you go, okay, you can see the line that is going from Nipsey Russell to Moms Mabley or to Richard Pryor. But then you also have to look at the fact that in there as well is Bill Cosby. Mm, mm. And that was the tricky part in the book because you're like, this is a guy who influenced black and white comedians at the height of his popularity. Now, how do you get around writing that in a book and saying, listen, this guy was huge, but at the same time, now we know what's happened. So that was something that I had to go back and forth with my editor about, basically, is that, look, I, want, I, I need to include it. You've got to include Bill Cosby in there. But how do you include a bit in there about, obviously, what has happened over the past several years, the atrocities that he has done? Um, and I think, I think I've just about got it, to be honest. It do, unfortunately, it does broke, break up the flow mm. of the last chapter a little bit, mm. but it you know, it needed to be said. That's the thing. You can't just go, and Bill Cosby did this and then that. And you're going, no, no, it's got to be addressed. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, so while that's addressed in the book, some people are going to say, but you haven't addressed Eddie Murphy's problems, troubles, mm. scandals or anything. Mm. And it's true, I haven't. But at the same time, I'm never writing a book about somebody's personal life. Mm. Yeah. To yeah. me... I don't find that interesting. I mean, do you do you find that interesting at all? I think it's a well. The first thing is I don't, in terms of Bill Cosby, in terms of um, what what people have done in in criminal actions that 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 they it doesn't disrupt my appreciation of them as artists necessarily. I mean, I can I can I Chinatown is one of my best the best films ever made and and the guy who made it's a rapist and yeah. just, i mean it's you know um it it, it doesn't it it i just i don't want to be flippant and say it doesn't bother me but um it's not i i can compartmentalize and i can i can appreciate it without that casting a shadow over it you can separate the art from the artist uh, yeah, I mean, I I guess I mean it, it depends a bit on the art, to tell you the truth. Right. But, um, but it I, I I it's not that I can separate it or discount it or whatever. But it yeah, I there's a there's a compartmentalization that takes place. The problem with comedians is that um, comedians, especially of a certain genre, uh, put themselves forward as, as truth tellers. 
so, and this is one of the problems I have with Louis C.K., is that his entire act was based on him saying extreme things because deep down you trusted he was on the side of the angels. So he would say, I remember in his act, him talking about being in a lift with some woman and just saying, ah, I want to come on your face, you know, as a... Um, as a as a joke and you would laugh because you would think that's such a crazy thing to admit and to say and of course he doesn't mean it and then when you find out what he's been doing in hotel rooms you know with very very shady um uh notions of consent or lack thereof uh, then you start to think well i don't really I, are you joking or are you hiding in pl plain sight or are you are you getting one over on me as a member of your audience and that becomes a bit uh, uh with cosby his problem was he was america's uncle he was the you know the knitwear king so uh you know he had all these children around him and you just saw again that there was this element of trust and then um and then he was he was raping people, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, systematically. You know, he had a, he had a method and everything. Yeah, and you you know you're talking about you mentioned there about Louis C.K. and I think we can look back at obviously what Eddie Murphy was doing in Delirious and Raw, and talking about homosexuals and AIDS, and obviously at that time, it was, you know, it, it's still deeply troubling to watch those shows even though they are incredible shows i mean my goodness they are amazing but you watch that section now and you just think yeah this is not right at all and it wasn't right then and the thing is obviously we now know in the over the past several years eddie murphy has apologized time and again for it and he has come out and he said listen i was not as educated about aids back then as i was now and I realized that what I said was wrong and I apologized and he continues to apologize for it. So he understands what he did wrong there. That doesn't make it right at all. And some of the other things that are in raw, you know, talking about um, bringing a woman back from, you know, from Africa who doesn't understand, you know, the, the, the way that, the you know the 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 first world works or the way that hollywood works or anything else like that you know i mean they're deeply troubling but at the same time you're kind of like okay i am laughing at it mm. but there's still that thing there where you're going no this is too much but then then he does the routine about the hamburger or the ice cream and you're like my goodness this guy is nailing it absolutely you know spot on i mean we've all experienced the fact of our friend had mcdonald's and we had some sort of shitty burger that our mom had cooked you know that's the thing and that's the thing you he goes from those moments of sheer brilliance to moments of sheer depravity really mm. but then that's the education and as he said you know he he didn't know any better and i guess when you are that famous i mean let's not forget he was worldwide famous mm. even when delirious was coming out and he had surrounded himself with yes men um and that it, that was very clear to me when i was writing the book that as a very early on he surrounded himself with his mates as i guess we would all do um put them all on his payroll 
And then nobody ever said no to him. Nobody ever turned around and said, mm, I'm not sure this is a good idea. And obviously for all of the great that did, you know, for all of the goodness that that did, that gave us something like coming to America because, you know, he had that idea while he was on tour. Um, Boomerang as well, a great idea, you know, a great film as well. At the same time, nobody turned around to him and said, you know, these moments in your stand-up, maybe you shouldn't be doing them. And I think that's, that's possibly always been a problem with Eddie Murphy is that he's surrounded himself with his friends. He's surrounded himself with yes people. I don't think it's a problem now. I think he has now realised that actually we need somebody to, to you know, tell me no, which is great. Um, and one, bizarrely, one of the few people who seem to have been able to do that through the years, actually, with him is Barry Blaustein, who mm. was one of the writers for Saturday Night Live. Um, you know, he was... He was instrumental in writing for Eddie Murphy on Saturday Night Live. They wrote Coming to America together, Nutty Professor as well, Coming to America as well. They've had this long-standing friendship for decades. And from interviewing him for the book, it did seem like he had the ability to turn around and say, no, that's not funny or no, that's not right, etc. Like, I'll give you an example. He was telling me about there was an idea in Coming to America, so the sequel, that the guys in the barber shop, in the mighty shop, were going to have MAGA hats. But it wasn't going to be about Trump. It was going to be about somebody else. And they didn't understand that it was about Trump. And basically, Blaustein and Murphy turned around and said, it's really funny. It really worked on the page. But at the same time, it dates the film. Mm. And I think that's an interesting choice there because all of a sudden they go, well, this film is talking about this small time period, this four years, this six years. Mm. And after that, maybe a generation that comes to it after is going to have very small interest in, in that type of joke. And that to me was kind of interesting. The fact that somebody would turn around to say, Eddie Murphy and say, it's a funny joke, but at the same time, it's not, it's not your best it's not working as a whole in a movie. Sorry, just had an interruption there. That's Yeah, that's a really good point. And I love the, I love the fact that uh, with these um, interviews, you get the opportunity to talk quite a few people who uh, perhaps people don't usually get uh, talk about and they give a really interesting insight into into uh, these these huge uh, as you as as we were already describing a superstar. Yeah, I mean, there's two two reasons for that. To be honest with you, John, one is while it's great to interview these huge stars who were you know the co-star of of a film or something. You know, I'm sure it'd be great to interview Nick Nolte, um, but at the same time. Nick Nolte has been interviewed time and again, mm. and he's spoken about 48 hours. He's not really going to tell you much more about it. Whereas if you interview somebody who is slightly down the line, they're going to have a bit more to say about it. They're going to open up probably a bit more. And that was always the thing. And I, I learned that when I was writing the Pacino book, is that actually if you don't get the co-star, you get somebody else who, you know, I'm not talking third banana from the left, you know, we're not talking saved by the bell type stuff here, but you know, somebody who was there who had lines and who was on set quite a bit, but maybe you wouldn't automatically realize was 
was you know taking it all in i mean i'm not saying that there aren't big people here you know reginald hudlin director of boomerang i mean hmm. you can't get much closer to eddie murphy than that cat williams um who talks about norbit yes i mean there is a whole chapter on norbit um, i i i was gonna that that was gonna be questioned um <laughs> yeah well we'll come to it that's fine but but i was gonna say i'll hold my fire on that one yes <laughs> it's fine but ultimately the fact that I was speaking to these people who were one step away from Eddie Murphy, but were in the inner circle while making these films, you know, somebody like Keith Robinson, who is, is a platinum selling music artist, was in Dreamgirls and was signed to Motown and then was working with Eddie Murphy. Somebody like that, you know, Doug Williams, who is a stand-up comedian in the US, who probably most people in the UK won't know. Um, he's got quite a following in the US but at the same time, he had such an interesting story to say about working on The Nutty Professor in that basically he was down and out and he was lucky to get the gig. And then um, Eddie Murphy really helped him along. And it kind of brought through this, this selfless side of Eddie Murphy, which mm. I think a lot of people probably weren't aware of. So getting these interviews was great because you you actually got some real stories out of it. That was the thing as well. But there's a, there is a, a flip side to that coin as well. John is that yes I did go after some of the big names I you know I'm not going to say that I didn't I did but nobody wanted to talk about it mm. why and, was that well I don't know this is the thing you know with the Pacino book everybody was like hey I'm happy to talk about working with Al Pacino of course I am with the Eddie Murphy thing it was really weird it was very much like no I'm, I'm it was just it was a very sharp no from a lot of people mm. And I don't know if it's people are worried about saying the wrong thing when you get into the inner circle of somebody like Eddie Murphy, mm. because it takes a long time to get in there, it seems. So I just wonder if it is that at the back of their mind that they will lose that. I don't want to say friendship, but that connection, maybe. Mm. I could be way off. I could be getting this completely wrong. But the fact that so many people turned around and said, no, thank you. We don't want to do it. Or no. Um, I'm like, that's strange to me, really strange. You would have thought everybody would be shouting from the rooftops, I've worked with Eddie Murphy, and it, it was amazing. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it was it was very odd, very odd. Uh, he's always, he's, he's well, always might might not be right, but he's he's had a combative relationship with the press as well. So you, you would imagine that he would be very um, protective of his own of his image yeah i think so i mean there's a great interview out there that i saw when i was writing the book about him he was in the uk for the first time and they said to him what you know do you like the uk and he goes no i hate it absolutely hate it i'm never coming back and i don't think he ever did come back either that's the thing you know you you think nowadays with obviously all of these world premieres the the stars fly around the world i mean eddie murphy never came to the uk for any of these movies at all i'm talking shrek I'm talking nutty professor dr doolittle we're going that far back um you know dolomite no why why, why did he hate the uk so much i just think it I, wasn't i mean i'm not i'm not contradicting him but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean maybe well i it's difficult to know i just don't think maybe it was the adoration mm. You know, mm. maybe it was something like that. Like people weren't bowing down to him enough at the time. I'm not right. sure. But then at the same time, he is a homebody as well. He loves staying at home. This is the weird thing that I, I discovered as well, that he would happily 
make a film shot down the road, you know, at Culver City, than than go half the way around the world and film something, you know, do a Marvel movie or something else like mm. that. Because he would rather be at home. He would rather be with the family. And he's that's the thing. That's the interesting thing now is that yes, he had the big life. He had the going out every night and you know loads of money. I mean, his nickname during the eighties was Money because he was making so much of it. <laughs> right. Um, you know, the cars, his his house, Bubble Hill, which had a recording studio in it, uh, and all his friends would come around, Prince would go and all of that. So he had the party lifestyle. Obviously, the song Party All the Time, you know, is, um, I think, is probably um, self-explanatory where that yeah. came from. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then suddenly, he just decided to settle down. And that came around, obviously, when he was doing the kids' movies. Because right. he turned around and he said, I want to do the movies that my kids can watch because I can't show my kids Beverly Hills Cop. I right. can't show my kids 48 Hours. And I think that's where it all came from, is that basically he was like, well, I can stay at home and I can voice Donkey and Shrek and make, you know, whatever it is, 50 million or something stupid. And I've only got to travel down the road. It's very simple for me. And I think he he then got into that very easy groove that I think some actors do, you know, um, of, of just doing the same type of role over and over again, because it seems to work for them and they haven't got to dig deep at all or anything. So I think that's where that came from. Um, I mean, listen, I'm not going to knock him for continuing to take DreamWorks's dollars for doing Donkey. I mean, let's be honest, you know, there's, that's an iconic character there's, again, you know, we're, we're talking about Eddie mm. Murphy iconic characters, Donkey. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's go back a little bit because I, I'm also interested because you seem to, you, you, you know a lot about comedians and you've also, you've, you've written about Rick Mail. So you're obviously sort of very much into that, that part of, of culture and, and that, that, uh, that area. Um Murphy begins like as a comedian and you have an interesting bit in the book that I, I was really taken by where you talked about how he goes to one of the clubs. I think it might be the comedy store or, so, or the comic strip maybe. And he does, uh, or maybe I'm just thinking of Rick Mail too, too much. Um, he just does, and he does a, a, a stand-up routine and the guy watching him thinks or like the manager or somebody thinks, Oh, he's um, the jokes aren't good. And this isn't good. And that isn't good, but he's got real stage presence and we can get him better jokes. But if he hadn't had stage presence then there's nothing really you can do about it. Um, and, and then from there he goes, he goes from there to sort of SNL and, and, and the rest is history as they say. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's kind of how it started for him. And you're talking about when he was doing these clubs, you're talking about he was 15, right. 14. Right. You know, and he was in the clubs before that. He was lying about his age. He was calling up all the clubs um, in in New York City and New York itself as well, the wider area, and putting on a voice. And people would say, yeah, okay, come down and we'll give you a slot. And then they would turn up and it would be some high school kid and they'd be like what you know and this would be this wouldn't be like seven in the evening either this would be like 11 o'clock at night or something and he'd had to travel there on on public transport as well you're, you're talking about the 1970s as well mm. um mm. but he just had that bravado from the off really you know i mean he he had put a stage in the basement of his house and he would mimic elvis 
Like he had mm. the gold lame coat and he would put Elvis tracks on, so albums on, and he would mimic everything about him and he would be drenched in sweat and everything. There was one time where his brother Charlie came down, just looked at him doing it. And he said, you are completely crazy. Yet maybe that's the point of it. You know, going back to you saying about, you know, me having an interest in, in comedians. Yes, they are. They are slightly crazy. They've got to be to go up on stage and do what they do and be prepared to expose themselves like that, you know, and for Murphy to do it from such a young age, mm. just showed that this was a guy who didn't care what people said. He knew he got it. And, you know, the guy who you were talking about at the, at, um, the comic strip, that was Robert Watts, mm. who ended up becoming his manager, who ended up getting him the gig at Saturday Night Live as well. But that didn't go too well either, because when he was trying to get in at Saturday Night Live, they'd heard that there was an opening for a black comedian on Saturday Night Live. This was at a time where there was just one opening for, for a person of colour, basically. Yeah. And they'd heard that, um, yes, th there's a slot here. So, that, so Eddie Murphy went and was interviewed, also sort of did a bit of stand-up as well. Um, to one of the casting directors who thought they were fantastic and then went to see um, Gene Dumanian, who obviously at that time had taken over from, um, oh, my mind, uh, it now escapes me, who created Saturday Night Live. Uh, oh, Lorne Lord. Lord Michaels, yes. Lorne Michaels, yeah. So it said, uh, so then Eddie Murphy had to go and do the same thing again in front of Gene Dumanian. And they turned around and said, yeah, it's okay, but I've got somebody else in mind. And that somebody else in mind was Damon Wayans. And then basically there was this huge turnaround of people under Dumanian's um, leadership. And somehow they turned around and they said, well, Murphy will work for a lot cheaper. Right. Will. So that's how he got in. But even then, it still took him a long time. <laughs> the to, first to... the first and the last time anyone would say that. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, it still took him a long time to get on screen to actually have um, a skit, basically. Mm. It took mm. a long time. And even then, the first skit, 40 seconds, blink and mm. you would miss it type thing. Yeah. But then, obviously... You know, here in the UK, you'll know this as well, growing up in the UK, we didn't have Saturday Night Live. We, we, we had no idea about it, apart from when there was a film starring somebody from Saturday Night Live and they'd go, hey, it's, it's the guy from Saturday Night Live. And you'd go, wow, this mythical show, which we've never seen, must be absolutely amazing. Um, but at the time, it was on its arse. Mm. It really was. And then... A year later, everybody's proclaiming it the Eddie Murphy show rather than Saturday Night Live because he basically brought people back. I mean, I put a list in my book of the characters that Eddie Murphy was doing constantly, week in, week out. There's there's like 12 of them. Mm. 12, but but 12 well-known characters. That's the thing. It's not just mm. one or two well-known or anything else like that. You're talking about 12 known characters. And then you've got the other things as well, the impressions that he did. There is, I would absolutely encourage everybody to go online, go to YouTube and type in Eddie Murphy, James Brown, and watch him do James Brown in a hot tub. It's <laughs> sensational. It's absolutely amazing. And it's hilarious, even to this day. But it just showed what a natural talent he was, that he could turn up and he could turn 
James Brown with all his oohs and ahs and, you know, with squeals and whatever else into a joke about putting his foot into a hot tub. <laughs> I'm, that's not I'm going to do as soon as this interview is over, though. <laughs> it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. But then you had him, you know, um, portraying Stevie Wonder mm. as well. Mm. You had him taking the piss out of Mr. Rogers as well but in a very dark way in a very real way by the time murphy had become this sensation on saturday night live he basically had the run of the mill and he was able to do a few other um skits pieces that were actually real hard looks at racism i mean mm. there is a skit where he's with lou gossett jr where they stop it halfway through and they turn around and they say no no th this is not right this writing is not right you know there's a lot of um, black people who love their fathers, who have fathers in their lives, mm. and to stop that. And then also at the end of that, when him and Lou Gossett Jr. are talking to camera, his dad's, his stepfather's in the audience, and he gets his stepfather to stand up and go, look, this is my stepfather. I love him dearly. Mm. That's the type of power that he had to turn around and do something like that. He also did a skit um, where he basically dressed up as a white man and mm. got away with things and while there was a lot of humour in it, there is the final thought, which I'm not going to spoil because you can see it online. The final thought is really interesting, mm. really interesting. Uh, yeah, that impact. You're, you're absolutely right about Saturday Night Live not coming through. And it's a bit, it's a bit weird now that we do have YouTube and we have Saturday Night Live. You know, on Twitter always blows up after someone does a monologue or David Chappelle yeah. comes back to Saturday Night Live, and I always feel like we're lagging. America has this way as well of telling, of talking about itself as if the rest of the world should know. So it's always yeah. they're sort of like, you know, oh, this is huge, David Chappelle. I don't know who David Chappelle is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, only re only quite recently with Netflix specials and stuff have I been sort of like looking at. But anyway, um, he, he you're, you you say in the book, and it, it, it's quite right that the the sort of transition from Saturday Night Live to movies already starts to become a sort of well worn path with Dan Aykroyd and and Ghostbusters, obviously being one example. But before that, Caddyshack and the Blues Brothers, probably the the. Um, the the first real real example. I mean, you have National Lampoon's Animal House before that, but it and, and they're, they're kind of sort of robbing a lot of people from Saturday Night Live to to make that. Um, uh, but it's interesting that sort of Eddie Murphy doesn't sort of take one of those Saturday Night Live characters and just bring it to the big screen, which which is what Aykroyd and and uh, and Belushi do with with Blues Brothers, for instance. I mean. 48 Hours is really a cop show that has been, a cop film that has been written way before Eddie Murphy. I mean, you say, you know, he's kind of in short pants when the, the first version of the script uh, comes out. And he, and he kind of takes over a project which isn't meant for him and yet sort of becomes the best thing in, in the film by, by a long chalk. And yet the studio didn't want him yeah. at all. Um, they saw the first lot of rushes and were like, no, we could shut it down and we can get somebody else in. Um, and I mean, even Murphy turned around to those who were involved. So Larry Gross, who was the writer, who I interviewed for the book as mm. well, um, and Walter Hill and said, listen, I know I'm not doing my best here. 
Um, I can do better. And they brought in an acting coach for him for a few weeks as well. And from that point on, he got better and better to the point where the studio basically turned around and said, can we get less Nick Nolte and more Eddie Murphy? And you think that's a phenomenal change for a studio to say that. Mm. The heads of the studio. And then obviously 48 Hours comes out. It's a global smash. Eddie Murphy signs with Paramount for X amount of millions of dollars to make himself, you know, this multimillionaire by the time he's in his late 20s. Um, but it, it, you're right. It is a change. You know, he he didn't decide I'm going to do a Gumby movie. Yeah. And I think that's that's him pushing himself rather than going, well, this character's OK, you know, and I've already got an audience for it. He's going, let's do something else. I, I've got the audience. Let me see what I can do. Let me see what I can push myself with. And now, obviously, 48 hours slightly different because he was drafted in as you said it was it was meant for really richard pryor who mm. at that time just wasn't able to do it but after 48 hours that's when he realized i've got a lot of clout mm. within paramount within the studio system within films as well and that's you know coming to america was just basically while eddie murphy was on tour he wrote a one-page treatment and gave it to barry blaustein and said right fill this out i'll come back to you after the tour and that was it, basically. The studio turned around and said, yes, we absolutely love it. Green light, off you go. The same with Boomerang, you know, Boomerang, which is a romantic comedy with all black cast bar, I think there's, there's three white people in it. Um, and while we see that a lot now, you know, you think about something like Mr. Malcolm's List, which came out recently, uh, which is a colorblind period drama. We're seeing it now but we weren't seeing it when Boomerang came out at all. No. So Boomerang, once again, a pioneering movie. I love that film. I think it's really funny, mm. really funny. Mm. And it kind of, that was when Murphy was starting to change a bit because he wanted to move away from being the larger than life electric comedic actor. And he wanted to be the sexy Hollywood star because obviously at that time, he was on the front cover of every single magazine. He wasn't just on the front cover of Ebony magazine. He was on the front cover of Playboy. He was on the front cover of People. And he was on there with his shirt off as mm. well. You know, people were like, my goodness, this guy is incredibly good looking. So there he suddenly thought, why don't I do a romantic comedy where, yes, I've got some funny lines, but actually it's a real look at um, people trying to, find themselves and also let's, let's not be honest let's be honest here as well it's about black people in power as well mm. that's the thing because everybody in that movie is is a hot shot or you know really successful at business and that hadn't been seen before either mm. so i think that's a fascinating change for him as well to to fill that movie with people like that and say none of these people, none of them, bar maybe Chris Rock, obviously the brief appearance where he's the, um, he's the male delivery boy. Mm. You know I mean? That's like the lowest person in the movie. All the rest of them are upper class, high profile uh, workers. Okay. Maybe we can take out Eartha Kitt and maybe we can take out Grace Jones in that as well, because they're slightly different in this movie, but sure. they're still, you know, they're, they're very popular um in their areas so i just think it's it was a change that murphy was trying to do and it didn't work that was the unfortunate thing for him i think i think it knocked him a little bit because after that he 
he was really struggling, I think, to to find that foothold again. You know, Vampire in Brooklyn didn't really work, did it? Mm. I mean, my goodness, the wig in that, the wig, mm. horrible. Mm. And then that's when he changed into doing kids' movies, basically. Um, just, just on the off chance, he was like, I want to do something for the kids, and it worked well. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And he mm. was like, well, I'm going to play in this sandpit for 20 years. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so him moving from Saturday Night Live and not doing that traditional route that we've seen was I, I do think it was him deciding I'm not going to rely on that. I'm going to keep trying and pushing myself. I'm going to keep trying and doing other bits and keep trying to better myself and try not to just be typecast in one genre as well. Because you would say Eddie Murphy is a comedic actor, but at the same time, you wouldn't turn around and say, well, he's just a kid's comedic actor. You know, mm. that, I think that's mm. the thing. And this is what I was saying to you earlier is that you and I think of him in Beverly Hills Cop or 48 Hours. Mm. But if you talk to your kids, John, chances are they're going to turn around and go, yeah, he was great in Shrek or he was great in The Nutty Professor or something. And that's such an interesting change. To me, it is anyway. Yeah, I I, th- I think you're right about him not being, but it, it's an interesting thing that you have him dressing in his, you know, trademark red leather, so, well, not, you know, onesie, and um, and and really absolutely putting out from there the sexuality and the and the and the whole, um, you know, there's a sort of aspirational, um you know, loud, loud and proud, maybe not, not, you know, not necessarily as sort of coherently political or radical as some of the comedians had been in the past, but there's definitely, uh, you know, he definitely is it, I mean, I mean, uh, 48 hours has it where he's, you know, I'm your worst nightmare. I'm a, I'm a, a, a black man with a badge. Yeah. You know, I won't say what he says because obviously, um, but it, it, it's it's it, he's he's showing this motor mouth sort of uh, confident in your face sort of black identity, and it for some reason it's having a huge impact on the black community, uh, and massively popular, sort of unsurprisingly perhaps. But it also for some reason also speaks to white America, and it has has this thing. Now then he transitions, as you say, into this. You know, you get that. I mean, I think Trading Places is one of the one of his best performances as well. You also get that in Beverly Hills Cop. Um, 
and then uh, when he goes towards the, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of Peter Sellers. There was a bit in Peter Sellers where he was uh, he was in Casino Royale, and the director of that film initially. Casino Royale was supposed to be Peter Sellers all the way through it. It was supposed to be, he was the main actor and he disappears like a third of the way through the film. He's just not in it anymore. And the reason was he, he, the, the, one of the directors said he didn't want to do a satire of James Bond. He wanted to be James Bond. Um, And when he, and he sabotaged the movie when that wasn't, what the the filmmakers wanted to do. And I sort of get that feeling with Eddie Murphy that there came a point where he didn't want to be the poor guy or the cop from Detroit coming to, he wanted to be the guy who's in charge of everything. And so again, I think it was an interview that I, I read about Harlem Nights where he was sort of taking out the jokes because he wanted it to be more of a, you know, he wanted it to be his godfather. Is it? I mean, I've done a chapter on Harlem Nights. In yeah, the book, yeah, it was great. It was a good and read. it was interesting to go back to that movie because there's a lot of love for that movie now. Right. I still don't think it's a very good movie. And I, I outline why in the book. Um, but I think the worst thing that came out of that movie is the fact that Eddie Murphy got three generations of famous black comedians together. And it didn't work. And it didn't work on, on a personal level either. And I think that really hurt him. I really do. You know, the fact that he got Richard Pryor into this movie and he was like, my hero is in the movie with me. He's on the same side as me. We're going to have all of the same jokes. We're going to have it great. And I'm going to be able to, you know, just by osmosis, take in some of that Pryor magic. And it didn't happen because at that time, Pryor was just... He was secretly struggling with um, with MS mm. and nobody knew. So basically he would turn up on set, do the thing and then go home. And I think that, you know, that was a disappointment for Murphy, even though he, di- he didn't know that he was ill. I think it was a disappointment that he didn't get to hang out with him and, and understand more. And the same with Red Fox. Obviously, Red Fox was getting on by then as well. Um, so I think it was one of those real disappointments for him and yet there are some really interesting style choices in that movie like the movie looks brilliant Mm. it looks gorgeous it really does um and it's a movie where it's basically you know it's a role reversal basically The, the black guys are on top and the white guys are underneath trying to come up from underneath that's mm. the thing. And it, we hadn't seen that either, really. You know, you could say that there were maybe a few black exploitation movies, but they hadn't broken through into the mainstream like Harlem Nights did. Mm. Um, so there, there is some interesting bits in Harlem Nights. But when I was researching it, I did discover that after a while where it wasn't really working for, for Murphy, he started to lose interest in it. Started right. not turn up on time. And you're talking about a guy who is starring in it, producing it, has written it, and is directing it. So, you know, he needs to be there all the time. Yeah. But it seemed to be, it got to a point where he just went, this is not working for me at all. And this is a real disappointment. Um, I mean, there's a great quote that I use in the book. Um, a journalist had asked him if he would ever work with Richard Pryor again. And he said... Um, I don't have the quote to hand, so I'm going to slightly paraphrase it. He said something like, 
it's it's like if you ask a mountaineer if they're going to scale Everest again, fuck no. Mm. Mm. And you think that's that's really brutal. That mm. answer is really brutal for a guy who he had posters of on, on his wall. And, you know, mm. people say you should meet your heroes. And I totally agree with that. You know, I've met people who I've absolutely adored through my life and they've been brilliant. But when you have that sort of reaction, and they're doing something you want to do turn out to be not what you expect you can see how demoralizing that would be for him yeah why he probably changed paths yeah absolutely absolutely and i mean the other the other irony is that his sort of attempt to sort of reinvent himself with Harlem Nights and then later as you said with Boomerang and Vampire in Brooklyn sort of this more suave and less sort of broadly comedic version of himself Mm. that sort of upper middle class sort of aspirational um version is is also kind of what bill cosby was doing and and which he was uh you know railing against in his stand-up um initially you know Mm. yeah absolutely absolutely that's the thing so you can see how that progression happens and that that's the point of the last chapter in my Mm. book actually is to show how the progression from some of these black comedians just on the chitlin circuit managed to break through and you know they were just nudging it they were just getting there you know some of them had um emmy award-winning uh talk shows on white tv as well you know and then you had others who were still keeping it underground red fox obviously and then you had richard pryor who basically broke through and people loved him no matter the color basically Mm. and then you had eddie murphy Uh, so so the final chapter is really like a, a a through line of how eddie murphy came to be but I want to go back to something you mentioned right at the start, actually. Maybe we should talk about it, actually, quickly. Sure. Is Norbit. Right, yes. <laughs> because the thing is, obviously, for all of the, the great stuff that Eddie Murphy has done, and then you have that sort of period where he did a lot of, oh, dear, you know, imagine that and um, meet Dave and, you know, all of those that were just basically him turning up at Culver City and just going through the motions. You have Norbit, which is constantly voted one of the worst movies mm. of all time. And, I mean, rightly so. I had not seen it since it had been released, and I remember hating it on release, and then I right. had to watch it again. And, yes, it, it's a horrible movie. It's mm. a movie that basically... It's just a really nasty and aggressive movie mm. that pokes fun at nerds, even though, you know, Norbert's not really a nerd. He's just a normal guy. Um, it doesn't po- it. It makes fun of fat black women mm. in a horrible way, a really horrible way, a really nasty way as well. That's the thing, mm. you know, and I think that doesn't work. Um I mean, the whole, the whole idea came about because Charlie Murphy had seen a video online of, of a black woman beating up her husband and somebody had mm. filmed it. And the reactions to the videos were basically men were shocked and scared mm. and women were absolutely loving it. So he sent it to his brother and said, I think there's a film here. And, you know, that's kind of an interesting idea. But the way that Norbit turned out is not the way it should have come at all. It's just a horrible movie. And you have 
the, the weird thing to me as well is the fact that you had Eddie Murphy and his brother there who constantly broke through barriers for the, you know, for being black comedians. Yeah. And were pioneers for people of color to look at them and saying, wow, okay, if they can be global superstars, then what, why can't I? And yet then in Norbit, you have Eddie Murphy dressing up as a Chinese old man in a way that is the complete opposite to his Jewish man in coming to America. The, the way that he's done the, the Chinese man in um, Norbit, it's just horrible. It's, it's a nasty, nasty character. It's a disgrace, really. And it, But this goes back to what I was saying earlier, is that there was nobody around him to say, mm. maybe you shouldn't do this. This is not right, especially in this day and age. And, you know, it, it, it deservedly gets a kick in. And the, obviously the unofficial line is that Eddie Murphy lost out on winning an Oscar for Dreamgirls because Norbit came out two weeks before the Oscars. Now, obviously that's complete lie, you know. Right, but, right. Of course. But it doesn't help. It doesn't help at all. And you watch Norbit and you think this is a horrible, horrible racist movie. Mm. I think I think the thing I find with his with his career that you, you know you you describe it really well in terms of the motions is is it there's a bit where it reminds me of Robin Williams that he you know Robin Williams starts off has this career as a stand up and as an improvisational sort of however at the same time different to Murphy he's actually an actor who who sort of goes into comedy as as but he's a trained actor he's been to Juilliard and he's he's really into acting so when he comes to do um dead poet society he does his john keating he's he can you know except for a brief moment where you see sort of robin williams coming through it's he he can do a character he can do a full character and he can also trust the director and he can also has a certain humility. He can play my own private idol, not my own private idol. I'm thinking Gus Van Sant, Goodwill Hunting. It's just because it's the same director. So <laughs> Gus, uh, Gus Van Sant's um, Goodwill Hunting, he can, he can sort of put in a really sort of um, beautiful little character in a film which is not his. Whereas with Eddie Murphy, and, and also, you know, Robin Williams does the same thing that Eddie Murphy does, goes into the children's sort of market and, you know, flubber and J Jumanji and what have you. And, yeah, loses some credibility in the process, but at the same time gains a huge audience. Um, but I get the feeling that when, um, when Eddie Murphy does it, it, it's not so much sort of the Robin Williams. It's, it feels more like an Adam Sandler um, sort of stream of comedy. And, and my problem with Adam Sandler comedies, um, you know, he's, he's, he's very good in some straight movies. And I quite like The Wedding Singer, the, the first sort of major Adam Sandler. I think, I think that film really held up. But the other ones that I've seen is they're just so mean-spirited. There's a real sort of like, you know, elements of grossness to them, elements that you're always laughing at a certain character, a certain marginalised character. The asshole is always clearly an asshole who needs to get his comeuppance, you know. Um, and it, it, it just, it, it kind of is that, it's a cinematic equivalent of 
punching down. I mean, personally, I think that punching down idea is a bit stupid because I think even if you if you have the character who you're going to set up for a fall being like the CEO of the company, if they're just every, you know, they're, they're playing into everything everybody hates, then even though it's the CEO, it's still sort of punching down because it's still so obvious. It's still so... Um, you know, so that's that. That's my, that's my, and and here we can also link Al Pacino. You know, out of the the toxicity of Adam Sandler spreads into all your heroes, Mark. I know it's terrible, isn't it? I mean, you were talking about Adam Sandler, and all I was thinking, I was getting flashbacks to watching Jack and Jill. You know, in twenty sixteen, and thinking, exactly. I can't believe I have to watch this. I mean, it's just horrible. But you know, you're saying about punching down. Comedy should never be about punching down. Right. It should always be about punching up. And let and going to my other book, Rick Mail, that's all that Rick and you know the the alternative comedians did. They punched up. They punched up against the Tories. They punched mm. up against the government. And that was what made them famous. Obviously being funny as well. But when you're punching down, it's just, as you said, it's mean-spirited, it's horrible, it's nasty. And it got to a point where you just thought, what why? Why are you have you run out of ideas? Surely not. But I think you do have a, an interesting idea there about, you know, there is that sort of link between Eddie Murphy's movies and Adam Sandler in that it's basically at a certain time, mm. they just decided to take the easy money and just keep regurgitating. Hey, look, I'm going to do this. And, you know, it's really the same sort of character as this. I haven't got to really think about it. And it's all very easy for me. And, you know, Disney are paying me seven million for this. And I'm on set for six weeks and I can go home every night. Listen, I get that at the same time. You're a great actor. As you said, you know, Adam Sandler has done some great dramatic pieces and he's got it in him. The same with Eddie Murphy. I mean, when Eddie Murphy was doing all of those kids movies that were not working out for him and then he came back and did Tower Heist, there were brief glimpses of the old Eddie Murphy in that movie. Mm. Mm. And you look at the reviews and I put them in the book as well. You look at the reviews and every single person praised Eddie Murphy's performance mm. and said, yeah, the film's okay. You know, it could do with being other things. But the thing is that wasn't meant to be that film anyway. It was basically meant to be um, Eddie Murphy w- was taking it on and it was going to be an all black cast. Mm. And then there wasn't, mm. there wasn't the money for it or the studio system didn't think it would work. So Murphy dropped out and then other people came back in and, you know, it, it ended up being an okay movie. But Murphy's great in it. Mm, and mm. you watched it and you went, oh, this is this is the Murphy we want. This is who we want. And I think that was the disappointment. I mean, thankfully, it does seem like he has come back because he, um, you know, Dolomite is my name, was a, a tremendous movie. But that was a movie that he had been working on for maybe 20 years because he knew Rudy Raymore. That was the thing. He knew him and he was like, I want to do a... Uh, a, a film about your life you've had such an interesting life and I think he nailed it I really do I think it's such a good movie for Netflix and it was what it was one of the first Netflix movies that sort of broke out and went into cinemas and actually started getting a lot of awards love as well I mean granted it didn't win too much but it was one of those movies and I think that's the interesting thing about it is that suddenly within you know when Murphy's got a project that he loves, that he's been working on for so long, he puts so much effort into it and it works. That's the thing. It's just the other movies where you go, 
oh, he's going through the motions and that's the disappointment. But then, I mean, how many scripts is he being thrown at? That's the thing. He's being, he's being given so many scripts because he's under contract. I mean, in the book, I've written a list of the movies or at least some of the movies, scripts, sorry, that he was being offered by 1980. So 1986 turns around, you know, he, he's one of the biggest things ever. I'll give you a list of them here, John. I mean, it's sure. just, it's just relentless. Um, so here's some things that were thrown his way. Music mockumentary, Soul, 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 um, a Vietnam movie called America 1990, a Planet of the Apes type movie that would see the human hero, Eddie Murphy, crash land on an island inhabited by babies. That was going to be called Big Baby. Uh, an all black remake of The Magnificent Seven. Uh, a buddy comedy called Out West, a remake of Three Faces of Eve, a remake of Some Like It's Hot. I mean, it just, those are the big ones. He wanted to redo The Kid, uh, Charlie Chaplin's movie, into The Butterscotch Kid. And there was a script written for that as well. Barry Blaustein told me they'd written a script. He wanted to do an update of The Green Hornet. He wanted to be in a Star Trek movie. I mean, he's a huge Star Trek nerd. That's the thing. And you see that in Boomerang, actually. There's that mm -hmm. whole scene. Then, I mean, just this list here as well. So this is a quick list as well. Fountain of Youth, two con men movie, Critical Condition, uh, more con men, Mr. Bad News, um, a film written by Neil Simon, the playwright. Right. Serrano de Bougie, The Black Musketeer, Count Cool and the Knights of the Round Table. I mean, all of these sound so generic and you can see why he passed on them. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. You know, there was one that he really actively was after, and that was being in The Godfather Part 3. Right, right. What what role was he going to play in that? It was, Well, it ultimately got cut from the movie. Right. Basically, um, there was going to be another uh, gangster in there, but it ultimately got cut. So, like, the first two or three drafts, Coppola had put in there um, a character which was actually based on the character from American Gangster. American Gangster. Thank you. I was just right. about to say to you, the Idris Elba movie. Yes. So there No, there Denzel were, Washington. Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington. Sorry. And, sorry. Um, yes. uh, Russell Crowe, Ridley, yeah. Ridley Scott. So Coppola had shoehorned in that and then it, it, it got too baggy. But I mean, Murphy was hot on it. I mean, he was in the press everywhere turning around and basically saying, I want to be in The Godfather. I want to, I will do it for free, basically. Right, right. And then obviously that didn't happen. And I think that was maybe another um, disappointment to him. Yeah, he's not had his sort of, or has he? You tell me, uh, his sort of John Keating role, his serious dramatic role that I guess Dreamgirls is the closest. Uh... I mean, Dreamgirls is a phenomenal piece of work. Right. And he's brilliant in it because really right. you're right. That is, that is so against type. You know, you mm. have a, a womanizing alcoholic singer which obviously is ripped direct from real life sure there are, there are many who have, who have passed that um that it's based on but nobody expected eddie murphy to be in that role and that's the only person who the director wanted mm. just turned mm. around and was like i want eddie murphy and murphy was really reluctant to take it because obviously it was out of his comfort zone and yet he practiced every single day at home for hours on end to get the dance moves right and to get the steps right. And everything that basically made James Thunder early, this nasty asshole mm. in the movie that you ultimately hate. And it worked. That's the thing. Like it, the amount of love he got, the amount of Ward's love he got as well for it. You think 
you could have done more, you know, that could have been your entry into doing more. And unfortunately it wasn't because as we said, the next thing that comes out the gate is Norbit. <laughs> which, which, you know. From the sublime to the ridiculous. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, you know, to answer your question, he has got that ability to turn into a very dramatic actor. Mm. I just wish he would have that confidence to do it. And that's the weird thing to say is that because we were saying earlier, this man is full of confidence turning up at um, a comedy store at 14 years old and doing something and outlasting some of the comedians who've been doing it for 20 or 30 years and getting better receptions. And yet it's a man who was worried about doing straight roles. But then at the same time, maybe that is the worry that comedians always have. Can I become a straight actor? And, you know, you mentioned Robin Williams there. And I think that that's a very good example of somebody who we all know and love as a comedic actor. But you look at his serious stuff. I mean, his performance in Homicide, the episode of Homicide, mm. TV, uh, Life on the Street, was brilliant. Mm. And that was kind of the stepping stone for him to take on more serious work. And I just kind of wish that maybe Murphy had, you know, pushed himself a little bit more. Maybe well, he will. But I mean, pre-Mark pre and Mindy, Robin Williams was, was doing serious serious acting i mean it's not uh i mean it's it, he's definitely had that the comic thing was open to him and he loved improvisation and that was sort of his 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 thing but yeah i don't i don't know i i see what you mean about um eddie murphy and this but i i think maybe there is a, a gap between sort of confidence and bravado i think you know the 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 14 year old turning up is bravado rather than, you know, I mean, it's about stuffing your lack of confidence into, uh, into a bag and, and, and not showing it to anyone, you know? Yes. Yes. It, it's very true. But at the same time, Murphy didn't need that. That's the mm. thing, you know, he mm. was, he was so, he had that attitude, even at school, mm. like he would turn up at school and have a briefcase. Right. <laughs> and in that briefcase, was a notepad with jokes on it. Right, right. That's all that was in there. You know, it yeah, wasn't schoolwork yeah. or anything else like that. Yeah. And you're like, who turns up to school, even in the 1960s or the 1970s, with a briefcase? Yeah. I mean, that's the type of attitude he had, is yeah. that I'm going to be a star. You know, I mean, there was there's that great story of the fact that um, one of the people who worked on Saturday Night Live went into one of the toilets um, on the floor there, and somebody had written on the wall, Eddie Murphy, number one mm. in in Biro. Yeah. And it wasn't big. And then he went into the same stall a few months later, and it had been scribbled over with the same words, but in big fat marker. Right, right. I mean, it you know, nobody knew who wrote it, but let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> let's be really honest here. You know, that's the thing. Um, and why not? Why not? He had the attitude. He had the jokes. He had the style. He had the look as well. And yeah. that's going back to obviously your first question, which was, you know, why write the book? That's what fascinated me. Is mm. somebody like that having all of it, having the complete, almost the complete package by the time he becomes a film star? Mm. Mm. And we don't, we, you know, we still don't see that these mm. days. I mean, think about, think about breakthrough film performances, as in an actor has turned up, you've never heard of them before, it's their, it's their feature film debut, and all you've done when you've come away from the film is talk about that person. 
and you mm. go, well, Eddie Murphy in 48 hours. And the only other one I can think of is Cameron Diaz in the mask. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, off, off the top of my head, I'd have to, yeah, I'd have to. Um, not even Pacino, not even Pacino. Cause he did panic in needle park. Hmm. So as much as people go, oh, The Godfather, he'd done a film before it. Sure, sure, sure. But yeah, yeah, the debuts that um, Orson Welles in Citizen Kane's pretty good. I mean, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure, okay, you can include that if you want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there, there, there are about bound to be some. But yeah, yeah, no, I see, I see your point. I see your point. Um, where, where do you think? Um, also, I. I want to note that we we keep sort of uh, skipping over um, Donkey and Shrek, but that character is amazing. <laughs> that's a really yeah. that's a really genuinely funny, uplifting sort of um, uh, you know character, and he his shtick doesn't get you know it it, it outlasts the the movies. You know the the yeah. I think it, I think it's a really it's really well done. Yeah, um, I, I completely agree with you. It's, uh, um, I mean, let's be honest, that film has three great characters and they're mm. all the three central characters as mm. well, all made their own. Well, actually, no, let's say four with John Lithgow in there as well. Right, right. You know, yeah, and... Lord Farquaad. Which exactly. Is, which you shouldn't know... even be in a children's <laughs> film, but it's so funny. But it's... The, I think that's the beauty is that, the, you know, DreamWorks made this anti-Disney fairy tale movie mm. that took the piss out of disney and they got away with it as well which is brilliant mm. and then eddie murphy john lithgow cameron diaz mike myers all turn up and all give incredible performances that even if it was just them in one movie you would talk about it yeah but when they're all in it together you can talk about every single one of them and go yeah brilliant performance that's a brilliant performance but you know it, it's it really was lightning striking, wasn't it? It was yeah, lightning in yeah, a bottle. Yeah. I mean, granted, they've gone on to make the sequels, which have made you know billions of dollars worldwide and still continue. But you're right, Donkey is a fun character. He's let's be honest, he's he's kind of our age type character. He's a little bit, you know, there's that dark side to him. He's a little bit disappointed at times, but he wants to be fun. He wants to be jovial. He wants to be over the top and everything. And sometimes people go, it's a bit too much. And you go, oh, okay. And I think the way that Murphy found that is kind of interesting. And there's no great secret to it. He just turned up and, and did it. Mm, mm. And yet some people, you know, they, they want to find the character um, and they want to understand who it is. You know, obviously Mike Myers had to re-record all of his dialogue because it didn't work the first time. Mm. Um, he was doing it in um, his own accent and it didn't really work. So he decided to do it in Scottish. That sort of worked. Well, it did work, obviously. But Murphy just turned up and just fired it out. I spoke Nailed to Vicky it. Jensen, who was the co-director of the film, and she said, he was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. He'd turn up, he'd do his work. He was open to suggestions and we couldn't fault him. And, you know, at times he would do a few ad libs, but he wouldn't do it too much because he realized, you know, we've got to stick to the script because of the animators. And you're like, mm, okay, well, I wasn't quite expecting that because, so, you know, you hear about people who do voice acting and they'll, they'll go off and do wild tangents just because they'll try and find the the right 
phrase or attitude or tone for that character. But for Eddie Murphy to turn up and go, bang, I've got it. That was it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And to this day, we're still talking about that character. We're still making jokes about that character. We're still enjoying that movie. I mean, you watch Shrek now. It's still really funny. It's timeless. Yeah, yeah. And, and as much as we can poke fun at the animation and go, well, it's a little bit dated, it's, it doesn't matter because it's the script and it's the people who are doing the voice that make it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what's your next? Uh, so you've done you've done Rick Mail, you've done Al Pacino, now you've done Eddie Murphy. If you've got your eye on another, another um, actor or celebrity that you want to write about? Not really, to be honest. You know, I like writing, but then everything that comes with it, as you'll know, as most people might know, that, you know, you write something, you go, this is amazing. Then you read it back and you go, this is absolutely terrible. I'm the worst <laughs> writer in the world. So, you know, it's that crisis of confidence. But I don't, I don't necessarily have somebody at the back of my mind. I mean, I didn't really think about the Eddie Murphy thing until obviously, you know, COVID struck in 2020. And I thought, well, I'm stuck at home. What else can I do? And, you know, mm. creatives are going to create. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm the ultimate creative. I like to lounge on the sofa quite a lot. <sighs> but I just thought, what else is there to do? So I thought, well, you know, he's an interesting guy. There's not a book out there that is relevant yeah. as such yeah. anymore. There's a gap I mean, on the shelf. Exactly. There's a gap on the shelf. And as much uh. as that sounds cynical to say, well, you're just writing it to, to flog the book. Yes, that is part of it. But at the same time, as I said to you at the start, I'm only interested in writing about somebody who I like, yeah. who I will turn yeah. around and go, you know what? Yes, they've got their flaws. Yes, they've got their issues or whatever else it is. But ultimately, they did something not just to me, but to an entire generation or more that sees them as, you know, this, this I don't know. I, an icon maybe that's too strong a word no I no know. i think eddie murphy's right up there i think you're right and it's really interesting as you as you do in the last chapter to put him in context of those of those black comedians and those black american comedians and 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 that whole um strata you know he, he is someone who feels like he came from nowhere but at the same time didn't you know there is a tradition there there is something that he's uh that he's playing with and playing up to and uh and and also changing the course of um yeah yeah absolutely absolutely do you know what that's an interesting point changing the course of film history mm, and this mm. is why i'm saying he's had three different movements film mm. movements and two of them have been big movement not just for him but for film in general as well you know as we said we talk about the early days 48 hours beverly hills cop etc then you talk about the kids stuff as well you know people are still replicating donkey to this day people are still yeah. replicating axel foley to this day as well yeah. that's the thing well, um, i mean would you have chris rock uh, um you know doing um what was he the giraffe or something in in uh madagascar, madagascar and, or, or or for that matter you know you you said it earlier you know, Richard Pryor walked so Eddie Murphy could run, but so Eddie Murphy walked so that Will Smith and Jamie Foxx and all these actors, you know, would they have had that prominence and that um, ability if it hadn't been for for um, 
Eddie Murphy sort of breaking down some of those barriers. And also some of that sort of like FU energy of like, you know, pay me, pay me my money, you know, show me the money. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And then turn around and flashing it as well. That's the thing, because, you know, that was a brave thing to do. Yeah, really. absolutely. Especially in the eighties, where you know it was all about white yuppies and look at look at this and whatever else. And then there is this uh, young hotshot black guy from New York who really wasn't given a chance. Then all of a sudden, he's got the money and he's on yeah. every single magazine. He's on every single uh, TV talk, talk show. Not just Arsenio Hall's talk show either. We've got to say that you know he was on Dick Cavett. I mean, yeah. he was friends with Dick Cavett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like off camera they were friends and they used to dare each other i'm not going to tell you the stories <laughs> because i don't want to get in trouble but there's a very good story of of eddie murphy daring dick cavett to go on stage when diana ross was playing i'm not i'm not going to say the rest you can find it online i will um, yeah yeah <laughs> i'm got, not going to say i've got that and the hot tub to look forward to later yeah yeah absolutely but yeah it, it it is that thing that, you know, you have these people who have broken through. You really have. Yeah, yeah. And it's made an interesting thing. And, you know, one of the things that I discovered when I was writing the book is that Eddie Murphy is one of the few film stars, one of the few, you know, central stars that on a poster is looking at you. Mm, mm. Yeah. You know, you know, you think about film posters nowadays, go and look at any of them. All of them are looking off to the left or, you know, up or down or whatever else. Very few of them look Mm. straight at you. Mm. Yet, if you look at Eddie Murphy's film posters, the majority of them are looking at you. Right. Ah, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to have to Google that and have a look. But yeah, off the top of my head, uh, 48 hours, Beverly Hills Cop coming to America. Yep. Yep. Boomerang. Boomerang. Right. Imagine Bo- that. Bowfinger. Bowfinger. Life. Trading, trading places. Trading yeah. places. See, see here yeah. we go. See, look, we're, so ultimately you're talking about 90% of Eddie Murphy's filmography. Yeah. The posters is him looking directly uh, at you. Confrontational. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Listen, Mark, that's, that's, uh, it's absolute pleasure to talk to you as always. And I hope you do have, uh, you know, you, the, you get that itch once more. I hope we don't have another lockdown, obviously, but um, no. I hope you do think of some some figure that you admire in the world of film that you want and entertainment that you want to, because um, I really do enjoy reading your books and finding out so much more about them. Thanks, John. That's really nice. Can I just can I just finish on two things? Is sure. That okay? Not at I all. I just want to. <clears throat> there's just um, somebody I really want to say thank you to who was sure. instrumental in helping this book, and that's Leslie Byron Pitt. Um, everything that I wrote. I put through Leslie. Right. And he was amazing with his feedback. You know, I'd said to you, obviously, you know, here I am, a white, middle-aged British man, and I'm writing about a black American comedian who is in his 60s. So, you know, there's always going to be that gap. Yeah. And as I said, a lot of it came down to the research. You know, I I really, this was was a book that really pushed me, really, really pushed me, and I was Mm -hmm. pleased for it. But even then there were bits where I was like, yeah, I, I need somebody to read this through. And Leslie, I'd known for, for a while, just through, you know, social media, really. Um, and I'd seen his writing. I really liked his writing. And I reached out to him and he was like, I'd love to do it. Yes. You know, he's a huge Eddie Murphy fan. He grew up with coming to America. He was telling me. So he was 
the guy who would read everything and he right. was brilliant it just little notes i know you have your editor and yes okay but to have somebody else there to come back and say well actually you might want to research this you might want to do that so i have to thank leslie he was absolutely brilliant he really was um and i'm thankful that i had somebody like that to to be the second eyes basically on the book yeah and I want to leave you with a little story from the book, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So I'm going to read it to you. So this was very early on, obviously, comic strip when uh, Murphy had um, just become friends with Robert Watts, who became his um, manager ultimately. But there was one night Eddie saw the legendary comedian Rodney Dangerfield in an audience. He pulled the star to one side and asked him if he could stick around, watch his routine and then offer feedback afterwards. Dangerfield agreed. Eddie launched into his routine, which centered around profanity and jokes of a racial nature. The audience were in fits of laughter. Dangerfield just sat there chugging away on his cigar. After Murphy finished his set, he met Dangerfield backstage and was told, I'm not going to do the uh, impression here, by the way. <laughs> hey, kid, I don't know where you're going with that. You know, the language and the race stuff. Murphy was heartbroken. Years later, Murphy who was a global superstar by then, bumped into Dangerfield in a bathroom in Caesar's Palace, Las Vegas. Dangerfield saw him, remembered what he told him all those years ago and said, hey, who knew? <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I just that's on me. That's on me. Exactly. And the thing is, you can imagine Dangerfield saying that. To him Absolutely. Well. Brilliant. What a great story. Thanks for that, Mark. And thanks for the book. And, uh, and thanks for the conversation. Thanks, John. on Eddie Murphy. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we obviously did. We had a great time. Um, if you have any questions or, or uh, suggestions for future episodes, please get in touch. Don't hesitate. You can reach out to me via Twitter or um, my email, drjohnty, with a H this time, at gmail.com. Uh, let me know what you think. And uh, as I said, any suggestions for the show, guests less use of the word absolutely in replies uh anything anything at all that'd be great um okay till next month <laughs> till next week um uh oh thank you to elliot of course for the music and to ali for the for the artwork and until next week uh please take care powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.